0: I, uh, the place we rent said, hey, we've got a, a fog machine now. You guys want to use that? And I was like, no, unless it's funny. Um, not in some weird way to enhance uh, our worship, which is a thing. But whatever. We won't get into it. When I was in uh, junior high, I had a chance to go on a, on a fishing trip to Canada as part of a ministry, a wilderness ministry with Youth for Christ. And, um, you know, we drove all the way there. So we drove all the way to um, to Canada And we're we're on the road for a very long time, and then we end up on this dirt road. And we spend two hours driving on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. I mean, this road was, like, narrow. There were trees that were, like, brushing up against our 12-passenger van. We were pulling a boat behind us. And we're on it for, like, two hours. And then after driving that long, we pull up into this little opening that opens up to a lake, river-type thing. And uh, there's a few boats, an RV. I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere, though. There's not a dock or anything. It's just a little beach. And uh, we, we put the boat in and we park the 12th passenger and then there's three other boats that have already arrived, and we load everything into the boats and we take the boats down the river through a lake through this really dangerous bend like I thought we were going to hit a rock a couple different times, and then we open up into another lake which leads down a river, and we're like now we get to this lake across the lake is this cabin we are in the middle of nowhere there's no you can 't you can hardly hike to this cabin. There's not a trail that goes to this cabin. You have to boat there after driving for two hours on a dirt road. And I've never been, that's probably the only time that I've ever really felt truly disconnected from the, the modern world. And I, but, but I remember one night. I, I remember I was, I was waking, uh, I woke up, and I remember the night in particular because there was no artificial lights. This doesn't have electricity here. There's no lights outside. There's no street light. And there was clouds. So there was no stars. There was no moon. And I woke up, and I couldn't see the, the, my hand in front of my face. Just absolute, completely dark. And I'd never woken up in complete darkness before. I remember lying in bed, feeling like I was in the middle of nowhere, which I was, and I could hear maybe the rustle of my bunk mates, but I could see nothing. Complete darkness. So I grabbed my flashlight and I head outside. Now to give you context, we're at this hunter's cabin. We get it a little affordably. We get it as a youth group because we're doing service projects. My brother, when he went, they dug a new outhouse. Uh, They cut firewood. You know, we went and filled the bear baits. These big oil drums. They drill holes in them. They fill them with lard and seed. They put a keep up in the tree. Rich people go and sit in the keep, and then they shoot a bear when it comes. They call this hunting. That's what our service project was, and I had to go to the bathroom. And it's completely dark in the middle of the night, so I go outside, and I'm walking to the outhouse where people hunt bears. And I'm telling you, every sound I heard was a bear. It I mean, you know, like it had to be. And I'm, I get there, I'm sitting in the outhouse more than you want to imagine. And all I can think of though is one thing. I can think of one scene um, from from you know the, the the OG of Jurassic Park. Do you know the scene? You don't know this one? He had a Jurassic Park. Great. Original. Thankfully, nothing happened. Nothing happened. But something happens in the woods at night. I love being out in the wilderness, but when the sun sets and it gets dark, the woods Change. What was beautiful is almost terrifying. What was intriguing becomes overwhelming. The sounds of nature that you're like, oh, this is so relaxing and beautiful. At night, you're like, wait, was that a bear? That's the power of darkness. And do not be mistaken. There is power in darkness. There are forces at work in this world that run deeper than our ability to understand. We're in a series where we're looking at the strange things of our faith, and uh, we're looking at these uh, ghosts and demons and Satan and hell, and last week we spent some time with a ghost story and didn't really talk about ghosts a lot. We talked about fear. Uh, today we're going to look at a story where a demon or an impure spirit is cast out of someone, but, but ultimately, just like last week, we're not really talking about that. What we're ultimately talking about is what does it mean as Christians or people of faith to reject, resist, and renounce the evil that is in the world? Now, in the 21st century Western world, believing in demons or evil spirits can be, uh, some people might say, is a little superstitious, it's spooky, it's strange. But I have to say that even our church, which is um, made up of people that are fairly educated and even a lot of people who are fairly cynical, that I've, in the context of this series, heard stories and stories of people who've experienced things that are strange and different and, or difficult or even engaged in exorcisms and just a variety of spooky stuff. And we're not going to spend a lot of time with, uh, with we're not going to get into that. It's not an appropriate place to really get into much of it. But I am going to look at a story. And one thing I know for sh- sure is that the early church believed that there were evil forces at work in the world that were opposed to God, and they took those forces seriously. Peter says it like this in one of his letters. He says, be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a growling bear. I mean, a giant T-Rex. I mean, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. They were worried about what evil could do to someone, and they agreed that darkness and evil and those spiritual forces, if they were left unchecked, could ruin people and society, and that it was our job as the church to renounce it, to resist it, and to cast it out When we baptize someone here at Central or any Methodist church, we ask a series of questions. They're rooted in historic questions that uh, that other traditions have as well. And the first question we ask is this. On behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? And we ask this because to be a Christian is to first reject cast out, drive away spiritual forces of wickedness and evil powers in this world. And that includes stories about demons, but it includes a lot more. We're going to look at a story like that. We're going to look at a story where Paul cast a demon out of somebody, an impure, unclean spirit. But we're going to find in the story that that's just the beginning of Paul's problems. So if you have your Bible, we're going to spend some time in Acts chapter 16. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Acts chapter 16. You're going to get a fair amount of Bible verses as we walk through them. They will be on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, I really want to spend, we're going to walk through this entire story that we find in Acts 16. So Paul is the apostle. He's in the early church. He's planning churches throughout the Roman Empire, and he's on his second missionary journey, he's currently hanging out at a village called Philippi, um, where he had just recently invited someone to follow Jesus. Her name was Lydia, so she's kind of like the first in this town, and her home is going to be the home base, the home church for this new church in Philippi. So he has brought one family into the into the fold, and now he's going to go out, and he's doing ministry, and he's going to continue to do that work, except for he runs into some problems, some demonic problems. Um, but they're, in this story, interesting. So let's look at it. Um, Here it is, chapter 16, verse 16. It says this. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, uh, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So Paul encounters a girl who has this impure spirit. And in the Greek, it doesn't specifically say that the spirit allowed her to predict the future. In the Greek, it says that she had the spirit of pythona, or the python. It was a Greek mythical serpent um, that uh, if you're into those stories, Apollo's killed. But at this point in the Roman Empire and in the the world of that day, uh, it was attributed to a number of things, including the ability to see the future. But also, it was a snake, and snakes were viewed as sort of sneaky and clever. Even tricks like a ventriloquist; these were the sort of powers that this particular Greek god, Greek spirit, um, was attributed to. And so, says so she had the spirit of Python, this Greek. Mythical serpent and it, and she was able to do fortune telling. So either it was giving her the ability to see the future, or she was really the ability to like be really sneaky and clever, and you know, like, but she had this sort of supernatural, spiritual, python-like ability. And thankfully, Jesus gave Paul and the disciples the ability to cast out demons. It was one of the things that I've send you out as disciples, and you'll cast out demons, you'll heal, you'll make disciples. I mean, these are a commission. They had the power to cast out. Interestingly enough, that's not what Paul does right away. Here, here's what happens, verse 17. So she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. I find it interesting, this phrase that she says. Um, she calls them servants of the Most High God. Two things about that. One, servants is a, a, a kind of a, a soft translation. It, it, she's using the word that meant slave. She says, these are slaves of the Most High God. That's that's the same phrase. It could have been referred to Yahweh, but in her context, she was probably talking about Zeus, because that phrase would have been used for Zeus as well. And I think what's almost happening is she sees these guys. She can tell that they have some sort of spiritual power with some God that's more powerful than her, and she's naming it. She's like, oh, they're a slave of a spirit like me, which is kind of accurate in a weird sort of way. Like, we become servants of of God. But she kept this up for many days. And I find it interesting that Paul doesn't just cast the evil spirit out of her. He can tell she has it. He has the power to cast it out, but he doesn't for many days. In this story, there's something about this girl and her impure spirit that wasn't a big enough deal to immediately intercede. Which is interesting in and of itself, that a little girl filled with the spirit, which is kind of the basis of like a lot of creepy horror films, that this little girl filled with the spirit, to Paul it wasn't something he needed to deal with right away. Um, something that didn't need immediate attention, which is kind of its own lesson, isn't it? I thought about this. In the early church, they didn't often interject into other problems unless they were hurting other people or there was an invitation. She wasn't asking for it. And so there was almost a sense that, like, well, you know, like, he just, he he ignored it until this happens. Finally, Paul becomes so annoyed. What a motivation for ministry. But... You know how many of us have ministered out of a place of being annoyed, uh, guilty. But he says, "I become so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her." And at that moment, the spirit left her. After many days, only because she wouldn't leave him alone, like he did. It's like I don't want to get involved, but he does, and he casts the spirit out. But this too is interesting because it appears fairly simple. He evokes the name of Jesus. He's direct. He drives the demon out. And it's done and it's over. Easy. It's not the case in every story in Scripture dealing with evil spirits. certainly not the case as I've heard stories or experiences of people who've dealt with evil things that it's not always that easy. But here, I mean, it's not a big deal. It wasn't a big deal before. It wasn't a big deal after. As if this spirit, this particular spirit, wasn't a big deal. And... If this was all he needed to do to accomplish God's mission on earth, well, then story over. Wipes his hands of the Spirit. It's good. Mission complete. Except... This is where the story begins. Verse 19. When the owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So, so Paul and Silas, they get arrested. This happens to Paul all the time. Most, so much of Paul's ministry is spent in prison. If We're not supposed to compare ourselves to other people, but if you're in ministry and if you're here, then you're in ministry in some regard because um, you're participating in ministry. If we compare ourselves to Paul, I mean, I'm not, I haven't spent a day in prison. I just haven't. You know. So compared to Paul, I don't know how that, how that measures up, but he spends a lot of time in prison, getting arrested, getting beaten. And and his story ends with him in prison, being transported to Rome. So Paul's arrested. He's brought to the marketplace. But the town, in this town, the marketplace was was where legal matters were worked out. So he's essentially being, he's taking Paul to court. And it's pretty clear why. He's taking Paul to court because, because Paul has ruined their business. It's about money. He costs them money. But they don't level those charges against Paul. Here's what they bring before the magistrate. Next verse, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. You see, there was nothing illegal about releasing a girl from the power of an evil spirit, but what was illegal was trying to convert people to a religion that wasn't recognized by the Roman Empire, which included Christianity, not recognized. So that's the charge they bring before the magistrates in that verse, verse 20. So here's what happens. Brace yourself. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. You you think evil spirits are scary? See what happens when you get between greedy men and easy money. Paul drove out an evil spirit. He did a young girl, a lot of good, but the people making money off of her captivity weren't happy, so they arrest him. He doesn't get a fair trial, and he's beaten, and then he's imprisoned. Now, if you were Paul, which would you rather face? The demons or the corrupt businessmen? Here's one thing I know. At least evil spirits listen to the authority of Jesus. James says it. You know, you believe in God, evil spirits believe in God, and they shudder. People, though? Scripture says someday every knee will bow, but we're not there yet. If I was Paul with all the trouble he faces with interacting with other people, I would have spent so much of my time angry at people. He helps this little girl out only after she won't leave him alone. Well, like he like, doesn't want to get involved. He's not looking for trouble. And he gets stripped, beaten, flogged, thrown into prison, placed on the inner cell, locked to the floor. How do you think he would feel? You know, like, how angry do you think he would get? Like he, He's not just in ministry. He's trying to start something new. He's trying to start a church in this place in Philippi, and he just learned a really big piece of information. Every person he invites to follow Jesus is risking the same treatment. Can you imagine if that was the entrance requirement? I said, hey, I really would love for you to follow Jesus, but you might. this could happen to you. In fact, it probably will because it just happened to me, and I wasn't even here that long. If you're going to live here, then something like this is probably going, would you still follow? Paul's wrestling with this, and we know he's wrestling with it because of how the story ends, so hold on to that. But he doesn't appear especially frustrated. Um, and I think it's because, and we'll see that in the next verse, he, he's the opposite of frustrated, at least the way that he appears, because he believed a simple truth. And here's the truth. There's a sense that people cause more problems uh, than evil spirits, but, but even with people, no matter how evil, they aren't the real problem. People, even those who you would consider your enemy, are not the problem. Not ultimately, they're the mission field. And I know, don't y- 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 there are people who you have a, a tendency or a inclination or a temptation to view as your enemy. We live in one of, of my generation. I know there's, we live in a very polarized society. This isn't the first time life has been difficult. This isn't the first time people didn't get along. But, in, you know, my little small glimpse of the world, which is only 30 years worth, like this is a fairly polarized time. So don't tell me you don't have people that you want to view as enemies. But if we understand, this is why I think we need a robust theology of spiritual warfare and evil. Because without it, we can get confused about who we're fighting and we can think just by accident or in times of weakness that we're fighting against people and we're not. Paul was in a similar prison when he wrote this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He couldn't be more clear. He said my war is not against the people, the crowds, the slave owners, the magistrates, the the jailer. His war is not against that. He says, but against rulers. Against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of realm and the heavenly uh, of forces of evil in the heavenly realms, without a robust theology of evil, we'll tend to see people as the problem instead of the mission field. We'll think of the judges and the magistrates and the jailers who, who participate in these systems as the problem and instead of the people that maybe were, were here to change, and that God might work in their lives in an unexpected way. What if? We were able to take the people we view as enemies and started seeing them as opportunities. This is a, a simple question that I think fueled the early church and is, a singular, is the singular idea that continues to change the world today at any time. You show me someone who's changing the world, who's changed the world, who's been a bit of influence, and, and I, I'm, I bet even if they're not in the Christian faith, they probably have some teaching that has to do with loving your enemies. It's a consistent amongst any world changer that I've run across. And because Paul and Silas, they grab a hold of this, this is, what, this is what happens. This is where the story goes. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. That is not how my story would have gone. Anyone else? There's literally nothing to sing about. Don't gloss over what happened. He was stripped, which means he was made naked in front of a bunch of people and then beat and then thrown in prison, and then put in the inner cell and locked down. And then he's like, let's have a praise service. Paul consistently looked at the hard and dark places as opportunities for God to do something. In the Greek, um, Paul experienced this as a form of persecution. And in the Greek, the interesting thing about persecution is it literally means to be hunted down. He was hunted down. But he wouldn't allow anger frustration fear despair to have the final say so he turned his face to god and he prayed and he sang songs you know casting an evil spirit out of a little girl um that's the kind of spooky spiritual warfare that, that makes it into movies and like, hey, let's talk more about that. But, but getting beaten up and thrown into prison and still not hating the people who did that to you and still not hating your life and still choosing to have faith and still choosing to follow God and still choosing to turn your eyes and praise, that's also a form of spiritual warfare and it's probably the one that we're going to experience more often than not. So here's what happens, Verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. It's a pretty crazy story, and I just have to say that that if you're in a hard place, and you choose to praise God anyways, this might not happen. Remember, Paul spent most of his time in prison. This didn't happen every time. He ends his story with still being in prison. But this particular time, he chooses to praise God, and the chains are broken, which is, I think, many praise songs have been written off of that, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, But that's not even the strangest thing that's happened in this story. Look what happens next. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. So you see, if you fail at your job in the Roman world at this kind of level, in this kind of way... You got to take your own life, or you're ending up on a cross. Like this is the honorable thing. You fall on your sword because there's just shame, honor, culture, and you don't survive that. If you everyone broke out and you're you're gone. But Paul, he had stuck around. Here's what he says. Paul shouted, "Don't harm yourself. We're all here." How he got everyone else to stay—that's the mystery of this story. But he says, "We're all here. Don't kill yourself." He was given the chance to run, and he stays. We have kind of like our first peaceful, nonviolent sit-in here. Uh, Or maybe, in his spirit, he knew that he wasn't done yet in this place. Or, as we'll find out later, he's got a card he hasn't played yet. He's got a little trick up his sleeve, and Paul's actually up to something. We'll get to that at the end. But one thing I know is for sure. If Paul had seen this town or these people or this jailer as the enemy of his mission instead of the mission, he would have ran the first chance he got. He didn't, and look what happens, verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a crazy story that leads to such an amazing question. What must I do to be saved? I hope if you haven't asked that question before, you will. It's a question that changed my life, In the Greek, the word for saved means to be delivered out of danger, like someone who had been (laughs) chained in a prison and they were given their freedom. This jailer had likely chained thousands of people. He knew all about prisons and chains and what it looks like for someone to be delivered, set free, charges dropped. And now he's asking his question, how do I get my chains off? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Freedom for even the jailer, healing for Paul and Silas, baptism, a family that would never be the same. And, and so the jailer breaks all the rules. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Joy. This guy found joy I think learning to see people as a mission, not the problem, is one of the ways we resist evil in this world because it leads to stories like this. And it's a crazy story. We could end there. I've preached on this passage before. That's where I ended. I said, this is great. You know, like, he sits through this immense amount of suffering. He still, like, he engages in this, like, variety of spiritual warfare. And, and then this beautiful thing comes out of it. There's joy. It's a great ending. But it's not the ending. Look what happens, Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order. Release those men. Verse 36, the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. So after a night in prison, they say, let him go. Just, you have to leave the town. Get out of here. We don't want you. Um, And Paul could just leave. And he still doesn't because he's holding a card that he's about to play. All things aside, uh, Paul was pretty clever. So Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. Now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. See, Paul wasn't from around there, but he was a Roman citizen. This is where he tells them that. They didn't know that. And Roman citizen meant something. Not everyone was Roman citizens. You weren't just born and you became a Roman citizen because you were born in Rome. It didn't work like that. It cost money or you had to be from the right family. But, but Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and that meant they had certain protections. And imprisoning and flogging a Roman citizen without the benefit of a trial was illegal. And to do it publicly in a shame-honor culture was a criminal act worthy of execution. These magistrates had committed a crime unknowingly that was worthy of the death sentence. They could be in real trouble. And they wouldn't just be beaten. They'd be hung up on a cross. If if Paul leveled a case against them, they would would be done for. And they're terrified. Next verse, the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. The word here, alarmed, it means to put to flight. Like, I'm so scared, I am now running. I went on a walk in the woods, and I'm running back. I'm, like, terrified. And they were terrified. You know, the first person to really be afraid in this story wasn't because of demons or ghosts, but people afraid of the consequences of their actions. And friends, that is scary stuff. Paul had to do his level of case against them. The next verse, he doesn't. Verse 39, they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting they leave the city. So they apologize, you know, they escort them out. But, they, but Paul has them escort them out for a reason. He wants every, he he was shamed publicly. He wants everyone to see the leaders, the magistrates, the people in charge who could do this kind of thing to him, see them escort Paul out, Silas, the other people, so that everyone knew that they were innocent, that the charges were dropped, that it was like they were fine. He wants them to see that, and here's why. Paul's gonna leave, but he does something first. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. Remember Lydia? Home base for the church in Philippi, the new home base, where they met with the brothers and sisters, and encouraged them. Then they left. Paul was being strategic. He he couldn't be touched now. Not after what they did. And Lydia, you know, sort of like what seems like the leader of the church so far, once Paul leaves, the home base for the church in Philippi. And with Paul getting escorted there by the officials, no one was going to mess with Paul or that house. In other words, for the foreseeable future, the local church in Philippi wasn't going to be bothered by anyone. Paul, God uses Paul to deliver all kinds of things out of darkness. First, God delivers a young girl from an evil spirit and the ways that she was being exploited by greeting people. Then God delivered a jailer from his own spiritual prison, saving him and bringing him into true freedom that leads to joy. And then God even delivered the local church because Paul was bold and clever, saving them from future persecution. The power of evil, and darkness, it's his ability to deceive us into thinking it's more powerful than it actually is. That's the case over and over again in this story and I think in the world we live in. From from the evil spirit to the jailer to the magistrates, by the end of the story, none of them had real power. The jailer couldn't keep him in prison. The evil spirit couldn't keep in the girl. The magistrates couldn't level any charges. They all were stripped of their power. The evil spirits left at the name of Jesus. The, the, The jailer's chains were broken at the name of Jesus. The magistrates were overruled, interestingly enough, by their own laws. And no matter how you sort of see or experience evil in this world, whether it's spirits or systems or people or both, here's what I believe, and I invite you to believe it too. Jesus is greater than all of them. And if we're honest, I know I know there are people in our community, and this might not be you, but I know there's people in our community who just look at the world, and it's just like, man, this doesn't feel right why does this happen to those people? Why does this happen to that? And it's just like, I don't, it doesn't seem right. There's things wrong. And friends, we're not the first people to grow up in a world that isn't the way it should be. The Roman Empire wasn't that great. Other empires weren't that great. There's always been a darkness at work and a difficulty and a burden. To say, like, this isn't, there's something wrong here. And I, why can't it get better? But I think that evil has its greatest power when it tricks us into thinking it's already won. So I'm just telling you, as a person of faith, I choose to believe that evil can't win and that it's already losing, that in Jesus, through the power of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus, by loving our enemies, by renouncing evil, by stubborn pursuit of justice, by clever and strategy boldness, by sharing the good news, evil is already losing. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. I don't care how dark it gets. The smallest light wins every time. That's how light and dark works. Light overcomes darkness. Darkness cannot overcome light. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work in that direction. God has given us the power to say to the evil, the impure, the dangerous things in our midst, you're not welcome here. And every time we do, they have to listen. They're only as powerful as the power we let them have. So in the name of Jesus, if you're here today and you find yourself in a difficult place, and you find yourself in darkness, you find yourself overwhelmed or scared for yourself or for someone else or for your family or for the world or for your community, in the name of Jesus, you can be saved. In the name of Jesus, you are delivered. I'm going to invite the band to come up as they prepare for our closing song. And I, I want to invite you to pray. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I want, I want that kind of freedom. I have chains that I would love broken. Or if you're here today and say, you know, I, I don't know how to overcome. I feel like there are forces in this world that I can't overcome, and I need freedom from that. If you're here and you say, you know what, there are systems at play that are, that are exploiting people, and I don't know how to overcome that. If there's something there's a form of evil in your life that you're experiencing, you're watching happen, I invite us today once again to surrender our lives to God. To say, God, you are enough. That on the cross you've already won. And I choose to believe that when you, when all is said and done, love will win, and evil will have no place. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we get afraid, overwhelmed. There are lots of forms of evil and brokenness in this world that just can be intimidating. Give us confidence and boldness. Help us in the midst of whatever dark place we might find ourselves to turn our faces to you and to pray and to sing praises of of how great you are. That you're not done yet. That there is nothing in, in all of heaven and earth not even death itself, can separate us from your love through Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no power. There's no force. There's no difficulty. There's no barrier. There's no amount of shame. There's no amount of sin that can separate us from your love through Christ Jesus. Deliver us today. It's in your son's name, Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray invite you to stand and join us. For-